Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with talented Brooklyn-based jazz saxophonist Ocean Jewel. He is one deep cat that comes from the beauty of Appalachian, Kentucky, and went on to grow in innumerable ways at CalArts under the teaching of Charlie Hayden and Wadada Leo Smith. Not only is he swayed and involved in jazz, but swims through a plethora of music styles. These days, he's listening to a lot of Jimi Hendrix. Over the course of our interview, we discussed his childhood, when jazz became his thing, what is going on these days, his latest album, along with much more. Dig this interview, my friends. So, first of all, thank you for taking a little time to talk with me today. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Joe. I really appreciate it. So, let me go ahead and start here. I know you're a busy guy. You have your debut album that came out. Give me an idea of what has been going on with you lately. Lately, we've been dealing with a lot of... uh uh, PR stuff, and uh, you know, we had a release concert for the album uh, that went really, really well uh, in the West Village at Cornelia Street. So that's uh, kind of a class venue. Uh, it's been around for a long time, and uh, you know, I'm teaching little kids and playing uh, playing jazz gigs and random gigs all over the place. But um, yeah, lately we've been dealing more with PR stuff than anything, which it's not my favorite it's fun to give interviews it's fun to uh i like reviews that's great i i don't mind uh uh doing those kind of things um but the 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 whole idea of self-promotion where i post things on facebook and try to get likes and all that stuff that feels a little gross i i've, I've been tell i've been joking with my friends that i probably would fit in better either in the past or the future you know um, <laughs> Sometime in 1963 would have been perfect, or maybe in the future where we have, I don't know, some kind of program that does this for you. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but um, yeah, uh, it's it's not really my forte to say, hey, look at me, but um, uh, it feels a little gross. The other stuff I like, I love the interviews and the reviews and, and, and all that stuff is great, but um, the self-promotion is something I'm not really so attracted to so gotcha well and speaking of reviews your debut album first suite for quartet is getting great reviews i really enjoy this album give me an idea of as your debut album kind of the creative forces kind of the vision that you had and how this whole album came together for you well now now you're talking you're talking about the older album the uh the one that came out in 2011 yeah that one and then i want to jump to this new one too yeah okay sure uh, so, in regard to the older album, you know, we actually recorded that some time ago. Uh, I think it was 2008 uh, in California, and we just sort of sat on it. I had it in the can for about three years until I got a little bit of funding through a Kickstarter to uh, to release it um, and do all the promotion myself and, you know, send, send mail CDs to people and stuff like that. Um, but it's a suite. I like to write stuff that has narrative, um, so musical narrative. Um, the individual movements are tracks that can stand alone, you know, you could play one and then play another one in a different order, but the whole thing works as one big piece, you know, so that uh, rather than it be a head and then some solos and then a head out, uh, it kind of has an arrow that's pointing forward, it can go to different sections, and it just gives us more freedom, you know, in composition and in improv improvisation to do it that way um for some reason that makes my writing 
a little more sincere. I, I don't want to say it's easier, it's harder in a way, but in a way it's easier to write that way. Right on. So you grew up in Kentucky, and it was mentioned in your bio that there is a music of nature that, that you're uh, in tune with. What was it like to grow up there, and how did you get this love of jazz? Yeah, um, well, it was uh, it was beautiful to grow up there. I mean, the place is uh, really amazing. You know, I mean, it's 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 Appalachia we're talking about. So um, I did live in Louisville. I went to school there, and um, you know, then there's other parts of Kentucky that seem like the Midwest, and some that seem like the South. But Appalachia is sort of of its own place. You know, it's kind of its own region of the country, with its own demographics and problems, and and um, but it, it's it's a beautiful place. I mean, it is. Uh, I grew up in a dry county, and surrounding, I think. 13 counties are dry or were at the time so and the the significance in that when it comes to music is there's no real venues you know there are no bars where people are playing um i mean red lobster won't even move into a town like mine because they make all of their money off booze so um so yeah we we just didn't have very much um i grew up playing in school band so that's how i got into music um and singing and choir and stuff like that uh, how I got into jazz, is I started one by one getting introduced to a few things, mostly through my dad. He would bring home a CD every now and then. I think he started with like stuff like David Sanborn and, and Tom Scott. And, and then at one point, I think somebody said, check this out, Charlie Parker. And I was 12, 13 years old at the time. So uh, I listened to Charlie Parker and thought, wow, this is a great saxophonist. And that's pretty much as far as I went with it. And I thought jazz was a cool style. And then I heard I heard some other things, and I thought, yeah, great, great musicians. And then I heard Miles Davis, and I, I got a chance to hear sort of different things through his life. And his, his journey was so diverse that it, it kind of struck me that we're talking about a really personal art form in which you can... Uh, be kind of like a composer or, or a, a, a painter, a sculptor, you can be an artist, uh, and then at the same time, rather than a classical musician who just plays other people's compositions, um, you know, Miles was a composer, and then at the same time you can play your instrument in a way that is creative and personal, and so that's, that's really what struck me was that it was a personal, unique art form, and that's when I fell in love with it, and then I heard uh, A Love Supreme, and I kind of realized that this is a really deep, or it could be a, a deep spiritual music, and that just did it. I don't know what it what it was about that, but um, you know, I woke up one night. I think I was fourteen in a cold sweat, and uh, I just kind of knew what I wanted, what I had to do. There really wasn't any choice after that. So I, I won some awards. I was a classical musician, and I got a, a scholarship uh, to the University of Louisville, and I was a classical saxophone major and uh, started playing jazz there and then started playing jazz gigs and yeah that's that's pretty much how it all started that's the lineage so the sax what did you pick that because of charlie or were, or was it just what was available and you kind of were lured to it you know uh there were options you know flute clarinet trumpet trombone etc and um i think that i had my mother 
had taken me to a Bruce Springsteen concert when I was nine, and I saw that there was, you know, Clarence Clemens was playing the saxophone, and his sound, it wasn't just like he was in a horn section, I mean, his, his sound really made that band sound like what it was, so, and I didn't know that at the time, I, I, for all I knew, he was just some guy, but um, I probably didn't even think about it, but... Uh, I think when I was thinking about what instrument I wanted to play, it struck me that the saxophone was diverse. And um, so, it, you know, you, you can play, it's very prominent in rock and jazz and blues and classical music and movie scores and, and pretty much any kind of music. The saxophone has a place, you know, whereas uh, the flute, yeah, of course, they play the flute in jazz and, and they used it a lot in and funk music in the 70s and which is great but but um but it, it's a little limited as compared to the saxophone the saxophone is such a diverse instrument and i'm i just feel really lucky that it it found me because i think the saxophone is uh, the closest to the human voice it's the most malleable wind instrument i think you can uh you can you can manipulate a trumpet or a, a trombone to sound a lot of different ways but the saxophone really doesn't have a standard way of being heard even in classical music where things are so rigid with sound the, the guys really do have um a very versatile sound and that it's funny that i that i kind of knew that that's what i liked back then or had some kind of intuition because that's what i'm all about now is is versatility and and uh being able to uh play a lot of different kinds of music i mean even the album that's that's out now that we just put out volk is is a bunch of different styles from around the world and a bunch of different contemporary things from around the world so i don't know i i'm not really sure which came first the chicken or the egg but for <laughs> some reason for some reason it really worked i don't really like to go to a concert and hit the same style over and over and over again it can be it can be fine but, but my my favorite experience is just when you go and they play something, and then the next thing is is totally different. That to me, um, that narrative of a, even a set list, you know, putting together tunes, really keeps me interested. So, well, and speaking of that interest that you have, that's diverse. It said when you were studying at Cal Arts, you had a rare po postmodern experience that integrated jazz, free improv, Persian, flamenco, Armenian, blues. Was that kind of a really good backdrop for you to get involved? with all of these, an eclectic palette, so to speak? Yeah, it was kind of coming a little bit um, already. I mean, obviously, you know, I went to a traditional school at the University of Louisville, but, uh, you know, we studied Hindemith and Stravinsky and, and Bach, and and, uh, and there was a little bit of world music, and then I had some friends that maybe knew a little bit about say North Indian music or something like that but Cal Arts is the most diverse place I've ever heard of and it's encouraged to play with that stuff it's it's not um, you know you're talking about a, a, a 1200 kids in all different art forms under one roof it's like a the, the, the place is like a, a little pyramid or something I mean um, 
it's not it's not a bunch of different buildings and a campus and all that. It's one big building. So you know, you walk by and people are doing some kind of experimental dance, and then you turn the corner. You you know, I'm just talking about walking to the cafeteria. You turn the corner and there's an art installation of something that you would never imagine that you'd seen in your life. And it is, uh, people talk about it like it's a school, and I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, obviously, there's theory classes. I mean, the academic part, they do take very seriously, but uh, it's, I think of the place like Hogwarts, or, um, I mean, it's just, uh, the stuff I learned there transcends music. I mean, it's more about how art fits people, cultures, uh, spiritually, and, and, as a purpose of art, you know, what is the purpose of art to people? I mean, that's really what, what we concentrated on. I always say that Charlie Hayden and Wadada Leo Smith, they didn't really teach... I mean, they taught music, but I mean, I never saw Charlie Hayden write anything about a scale or a chord or anything on the board. I mean, he what he really taught was wisdom and spirituality. And while I was there, he even changed the name of his class from improvisation to spirituality and music. And... Uh, uh, it was just more of an organic mind frame. <clears throat> and then all the theory and stuff, all the, the, the specific, specific stuff really fit into that rather than put the horse, the cart in front of the horse, you know, where you're teaching theory, you're teaching history, you're teaching music literature, you're teaching all of this composition, and then you stop to pause and say, oh, by the way, <laughs> this stuff is important to the cultures of which it came. No, 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 no. It's it's that first, and the music comes out of that. Yeah. And that's you know to segue. That's like that's why folk music has become so important to us. And at Cal Arts, there was so much world music. Um, the the Away music that we played was really important to us, and we still do it. We have an Away ensemble in Brooklyn. I, to my knowledge, it's the only uh, Away ensemble uh, in that's performing in New York. I mean, they're on, lay, on the way away people. Um, and for those that don't know, that's from West Africa, Ghana, Benin, Togo. Um, but I don't think they perform in venues. You know, we play at a place in Harlem sometimes. We play in other places. And uh, so we've kept it going. I mean, it's just become really, really important to us. And uh, I think that folk cultures, their connection to music is different than than in the west um it's just a part of life and uh it's like that here too you know to an extent i mean people who listen to hip-hop and r&b and rock and all of that which i do but um uh but when you talk about classical music you're talking about sort of a academic first mind frame and then people try to find the uh the the this the, the importance in that for for folk music around the world it's just a, it's just a part of life you know yeah yeah well it in and very clearly you've gone off in different directions you performed with Charlie Hayden and Joe LaBarbera but you've also performed with Gregory Hines Kid Rock George Strait Michael McDonald a lot of acts like that what is it like to share the stage with all of those different kinds of flavors of music what the word is I guess I, the word that I comes to my mind is grateful I mean I, I, I've just been really lucky you know um, I, I, obviously I was really lucky to study with Wadada Leo Smith and Charlie Hayden and to get to play with those kind of people 
Um, and when it comes to the pop stuff, you know, Smokey Robinson, Shaka Khan, those people, uh, when I was in Louisville, I got really lucky to be taken under the wing of some older R&B, blues, funk, rock musicians who just had been doing it for a hundred years. And, um, I think they saw me as a clean slate, you know, I think they got tired of the, you know, four or five saxophone players in, in the town and, and they were like, okay, we can, we can kind of show this kid the ropes. And, uh, you know, people would come through and, uh, you know, maybe Shaka Khan has a full band and when she's playing a big venue in some town, she, her full band meets her there. But then if she's playing like some small gig somewhere or on a cruise ship, sometimes they do stuff like that, they'll bring a keyboard player and a drummer and then hire guys in the town to back them up. And uh, this is especially true during the Kentucky Derby. The Kentucky Derby is one of the biggest parties in the world. I mean, it lasts for a whole week and uh, the race is two minutes long. But when they come through, I was lucky to be hired to to be in the backing band. So it's just kind of like a... You know, you ask what it's like, I guess it was kind of like a dream. I mean, Meatloaf was screaming in my ear, you know, you play that, you play that thing, you play it. He was screaming in my ear. There's, I look out in the audience, there's, you know, three or 4,000 people and just kind of surreal, I guess. Yeah. I would say. yeah, sounds like it. So you're in Brooklyn right now and um, you're a teacher. You've talked about the teachers, Charlie Hayden and Wadato Leo Smith and what they've given you. What do you, what's your philosophy on teaching? Well, I mainly teach beginners in schools, like after school programs. I mean, I have private students that are older in high school and they're trying to work up auditions for college. And I've taught college too. I, when I was at Cal Arts, I was a TA and I taught lessons. Um, and I taught some adult music education classes uh, at one point in my life. Uh, but you know, I'm teaching little kids, and first of all, it's a great joy because, you know, as professional musicians, sometimes we we get so serious that we forget, you know, these kids, they'll learn some little song, Mary Had a Little Lamb, or something, and they're just so excited about it, you know, and there's no BS involved, there's no intellectual intellectualizing of it. It's just how do I play this little song with three notes over and over again? And, and they just, you know, the first day they get their instrument, they open it up and they look at it and it's beautiful, you know. And I think a lot of professional musicians, you know, we pull our instrument out of the case and we're like, okay, here we go. We've got a bunch of work to do today, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, it reminds you, you know, of what's important about music. And um, it's really helped me to change the way I practice because you have to be really efficient to reach nine-year-olds. You can't throw a bunch of stuff at them. You have to throw one thing at them at a time, maybe two. And um, that's what they need. And it turns out that if I take that to my own practicing and I slow down and I do one thing and I don't move on until I get it, it just, everything goes way better. But I guess my philosophy is, you know, um, just to do whatever it takes to make a kid be the best version of themselves, you know, if they can, uh, if they can really learn, and and I don't have any uh, fantasy of these kids. Uh, I teach in East New York, and you know, a couple of the kids don't even speak English, and um, I don't have any fantasy of them all going on to be 
virtuosos or even getting scholarships in college. I would hope a few of them would get an opportunity to move on and, and experience new things and you know go to college because of music and stuff like that. But I guess what I'm really trying to teach them is individual responsibility. You know that that if they slow down and take things one step at a time and don't stop, don't give up, do it again until they get it. That they can learn to do anything. You know, it might be do their taxes. It might be um, handle some kind of logistic thing in their life or something in a relationship. You know, it, uh, so it, it really it really helps. And they're they're just magic little people, and and um, and I love them. And it's good for me because you know if you've been soaking up knowledge for twenty six years like a sponge, you kind of need to squeeze some of that out before you can soak up anything else too. So it's sort of a it's a flow. It's a there's a it's a two way street, I guess. I don't know how you would say it, but um, yeah, it's really helped to deepen to deepen my connection with music to teach little kids. That's cool. Let me, let me ask you this real quick. Who are you, who would you consider your jazz heroes? Huh, heroes. Um, well, musically, nobody does it for me like like Keith Jarrett um, and uh, I think everything that guy's done has been so sincere and deep and just he's an incredible musician um, and then you know there are people like Charles Lloyd and Wayne Shorter that have such a unique approach to the horn um, which is something that's kind of lacking I think right now people are sort of trying to play a little bit like there's a there's a right way to play and and I think sometimes that sort of stagnates the music as a whole um, so musically you know people like that and I look towards people like John Zorn and then of course I look at people in the past now when you say hero I, I tend to think something else and and people that come to mind sometimes are like a Jamal or um, um, you know, people who have more of a kind of, it seems like their life is, is a little bit deeper. And, you know, I mean, like I said, Keith Jarrett is, I think, maybe the greatest musician on the planet. I don't know that I would necessarily look up to him personally. But then again, I don't know the guy. I mean, he has the public image of being kind of a, <laughs> kind of a jerk. But, um, you know, for all I know, that could just be a big show. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, musically speaking, you know, I mean, like I said, Miles Davis, John Coltrane really had a, had a big effect on me. But I, I look more, at least as much, if, if not more, to other kinds of music than I, as I do to jazz. I mean, I definitely don't listen to as much jazz as I do all, all other kinds of music put together. I mean, right now I'm on a Jimi Hendrix kick, you know, and, yeah. um, a lot of hip hop and 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 modern classical music like Arvo Pertz and Alan Hovaness and you know Ligeti and Stravinsky and stuff like that and then bands from around the world folk cultures from around the world you know these things uh, mean a lot to me too so I get more inspiration from non jazz music than I do from jazz music these days and even from things that aren't music like film and and uh, visual art and uh, yeah, that's uh, to me. Once you get to a certain level, anything can inspire you. You know, you can find it from from other stuff. 
Absolutely. So let me ask you this. If you could go back in time and witness any show, not just jazz, but any music show, musician, who would you want to see and where would you go? Good question. Huh. That's, a, that's a great question. I've never thought about that before. Huh. Um, historically, I wouldn't mind to be at the, uh, what was it, the Paris Ballet when Stravinsky's uh, uh, The Rite of Spring, just to see that event come unfold you know but yeah. that's you know musically speaking man I guess I would probably like to go back to um, maybe about the time that the war ended and be uh, on 52nd Street and see Charlie Parker play to me that would be uh, I always said if I had a time machine and I could go back to one day I mean it'd be nice to go back to Woodstock and see how that what that energy was really about you know during that whole time and you know, being against the war, and, and I'd love to see that, but um, I don't know, the day the war ended, and that famous photo was taken of the guy kissing the girl in Times Square, and, and that energy must have been really cool, and, and then you could, you know, go down the street and hear, hear Bird play, <laughs> you know, and on 52nd Street, that's that would be a pretty magical time right there. Yeah, without a doubt. So let me ask you this, we hook up in 10 years, we talk, first thing I'm going to ask you is, What's been going on lately? What are you going to want to tell me has happened, say, even even 10 to 20 years from now? What are you going to want to talk to me about? Joe, you've got some good questions, man. Thank um, you. Yeah, I mean, this is, <laughs> this is pretty interesting. Uh, well, I hope that um, for myself, I mean, I have, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is the world and, and what's been going on in that. But you're asking about what I've been doing in my life in the last 10 years since we talked today. Um, I think uh, I think I would have, it's the same thing I wanted when I was 14. You know, it's never really wavered. Um, I, I, I would want to tour the world and, and play to audiences that were receptive and play with great musicians, hopefully my brothers who I've um, made these albums with. Um, you know, we're not... These guys, they're not just hired musicians that I hired. We, you know, we've been friends for 10 years, and we live together on two separate occasions. Um, <clears throat> they're my best friends in the world. They're like my brothers. So um, hopefully, you know, we, the, the four of us will have been playing and touring. And, and I want to see, see the world, you know. I want to I soak up all the different vibes in, you know, the corners of the earth and... and uh, um, I want, I want to play in Morocco, and I want to play in Norway, and I want to play in Japan, and, and um, Tel Aviv, and all these different places. I mean, that's that's been the goal since I was 14, before I even knew that half of those places existed. So, um, and to make records and document what we've done and put it out there so it exists and just keep growing. I mean, that's really... The, the first thing that really comes to my mind is that I just want to keep growing as a musician and as a person. I just want to, I, I'm on a path and, you know, we all kind of lose the path from time to time, but uh, just to keep getting better and getting better and, and getting deeper with it, getting closer to the source of all of it, uh, to me, that's that's the real goal. But yeah, I want to I want to tour and play and, and, and make albums and play with great musicians. That's That's really it. Right the on. Details can, the details can work themselves out, you yeah. know. Oh, yeah, always. So let me ask you this. This is kind of my final question here. Everybody has a perception of who you are. Your, your parents have a perception of who you are. Your friends have a perception of who you are. Those that you perform for have a perception of who you are. But 
you're you're guiding this ship. Who do you think you are? Huh. Um, sometimes I wonder if I'm guiding it so much. Um, you know, I probably wouldn't, when I was 19 or 20, I probably wouldn't have thought that uh, Ganawa music or Persian music or contemporary classical music would have meant as much to me as it did. And I didn't decide to find that stuff. Um, so in a way, it's kind of like understanding that you're more than just what you think of when you say your name and, and the little details that you think of as you, your identity. Um, there's, there's a connection to, to the greater you, the bigger you, that, uh, you know, those things I just listed, those kinds of music and Cal Arts and even coming to New York and all of that, uh, teaching kids, I don't know that I did all that. I didn't really force any of that to happen. It just sort of uh, came to me at times when I was in a, you know, sort of a crossroads. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to, to get closer to that. And, uh, and when you do that, and we all lose it and come back and lose it and come back, but when you do that, things just tend to work out a little bit better. I mean, if you have an agenda... Um, that I'm going to be like a progressive musician or a traditional musician or some combination. It just sort of limits you. But if you can just open up a little bit more, it seems like the, the greater you, the connection you have to, to the world, to the universe or whatever, I don't want to get too foofy out here, but um, it, that's, that's kind of what we're all trying to find. And music, I think that's the purpose of music. It, it helps us to transcend, you know, whether it's... Um, it could be some kind of house dance music people are dancing to in, in you know, the Lower East Side, or it could be uh, some kind of folk music in, in Africa, and, and it just kind of helps us to forget uh, the little details about our life that seem so important. So <laughs> that's kind of how I, I feel about it. You really wrapped it up, and you added and enamored, and that was a great way to, to end, end everything. Thanks again for taking some time out. Good luck with the album, man. Man, I really appreciate it. Again, really great to talk to you, Joe. Thank you. It was my pleasure, man. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over America, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Ocean for his wisdom, music, and vision. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.